Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Gist is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com gist and using the promo code just. It's Tuesday, March 17th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. All right, here's the thing. I usually talk briefly, briefish, up here, then interview, interview, the spiel, intersperse with some stuff you just got to know about stamps or razors or mattresses. But today, not so brief. Got a lot to say about the jinx. But don't worry, you get a real spiel at the end. Also, yay you. So I'm going to lay out the agenda for the show orient you from backward forward. Okay, I'm going to end with news that could shake up the NFL. That is the real spiel. But before that, I'll talk to Adam Davidson about Germans and Greeks and when talk of reimbursement turns to talk of recrimination. And in my first interview, a forensic psychologist on what makes some criminals or alleged criminals like Robert Durst take such huge risks, like, say, cooperating with documentarians. But first, on Durst, Robert Durst probably killed those people. Well, one, we know he killed. He admitted it. He claimed self-defense. The jury agreed. But they never found his first wife. And he has just been charged in the murder of his friend, Susan Berman. Without the film The Jinx, which aired on HBO and advertised on this show, it should be noted, Robert Durst would be walking around today. Without The Jinx, this murderer, in my opinion, which my opinion was informed by the film, but this murderer would not be getting the justice that he deserves. So how then can the jinx and the filmmakers, Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, be faulted if without them there would be no evidence at all? But I believe the filmmakers did behave less than ethically. They sat on evidence to maximize the wow at the expense of the now. Here's a rule of thumb about a work of nonfiction. If I tell you a quite salient fact about a reported story, and that fact makes you say, huh, If I had known that, I would have thought about things much differently. Well, then the fact I just mentioned to you should have been in the original reported work to begin with. Here is that fact. The last scene in the Jinx, last scene in the entire series, that climactic interview in which the main subject of three possible murders appears to have confessed, that scene took place in 2012. And that confession where he's saying, what did I do? Kill them all, of course. That confession, the filmmakers claim, wasn't found until many months later. Uh Uh-huh. Well, why does it matter? Well, Jarecki and Smerling told the best story they could tell. I'll give them that. On the other hand, 
I don't think they took the most ethical action they could have taken going to investigators sooner because that would have undercut the impact of their story. Other filmmakers have made opposite choices. The director of Paradise Lost, Joe Berlinger, explained to the Huffington Post Live why he immediately turned over a bloody knife to police rather than holding it back for maximum impact. Uh, We were given a bloody knife that quite possibly could have been a murder weapon. It was a knife that had blood buried in the hinge. It was a serrated knife that was consistent potentially with the knife wounds on these children. We called HBO and HBO sent us back up to New York and we all sat down and we, you know, rather quickly decided that, you know, good citizenship is more important than whatever the filmmaking project is. And we actually turned in that knife to the prosecution thinking that this was going to be the death knell of our film project because trust, somehow miraculously we navigated those waters and still were were able to make the film. And in fact, that knife incident is part of Paradise Lost. But we decided back in 93, you know, good citizenship is the most important thing. Mm. You know, good stewardship of the responsibility given to you. Jarecki and Smerling decided differently. Great documentary. Well, greatly entertaining documentary. And entertaining documentaries have been Jarecki's stock and trade. In Jarecki's Oscar-nominated debut, Capturing the Freedmans, he parceled out his evidence in a way to maximize impact, and I thought at times his choices were questionable. Jarecki framed that 2003 film as a meditation on the difficulty of knowing the truth, but off-screen, he became a full-throated defender of one of the film's subjects who was convicted of molesting children. The Nassau County District Attorney last year issued a thorough reinvestigation of the case, and the resulting report serves as a forceful rebuttal to the techniques and conclusions of capturing the Freedmans. Lest you think this was just the government refusing to admit it made a mistake, a panel of outside experts, including the president of the ACLU and Barry Sheck, director of the Innocence Project, signed on to the DA's findings, essentially saying there is no reason to think that the convicted child molester, who Andrew Jarecki champions, no reason to think that he didn't do it. In Catfish, Jarecki's second film, he was the producer of that documentary, questions were raised about timeline and authenticity. I've watched that film several times, and I believe certain scenes were faked. Perhaps the entire story was of a too-good-to-be-true quality. Perhaps it started off as real and then became something else and began to be pursued as an allegory or a meditation. I don't think that exactly happened in the jinx, but in both ethical questions abound. Not the same questions as in Catfish or Capturing the Freedmans, but entertainment does trump pure presentation of fact in all of these films. Timelines are compressed. Complicating details elided. The Jinx did ensnare a man I believe to be a murderer. You can also conclude that Durst could have been arrested two years ago based on what's in the movie. You could further argue that it's not the filmmaker's job to assist law enforcement. You could argue all of these things, and people are, which is one of the indications that Jarecki has once more achieved his goal, to make a work that is compelling above all else. So once more, on the show, a conversation about Greece, a spiel about football and concussions. But now, how about that idea that Robert Durst, and being so open with these filmmakers, the idea that he really wanted to get caught? I talked to an expert. (music) 
You know, we watch so much fictional TV and serialized and prosecutorial TV shows. Sometimes we forget, wait, is that a construct of the genre or is that a thing that criminals actually do? This came up, well, not just on fictionalized TV, but in the jinx. So many people watching that said, I think Robert Durst, just by what he's saying and how much he's admitting, I think he wants on some level to be caught. Well, joining me now is forensic psychologist and chair of the psychology department at Fordham University, Barry Rosenfeld. Hello, Barry. Hello. You've seen many TV shows which say this or imply this. And even in real life, people will go, you know, some legal expert will go on court TV and say, I think he's trying to get caught. Do criminals really try to get caught? My answer to that is no. I don't think anyone tries to get caught. I I think what gets confused is that people try to take chances. Mm -hmm. What leads the layperson to believe that they want to get caught is that there's a thrill to getting away with stuff. And and it's basically, you can think of it as just risk-taking behavior. People like to do things that are risky, and the riskier it is, the more exciting it is to get away with it, but not to get caught. I mean, just like people might want to do risky things in a car, on a motorcycle, you know, in a, in a helicopter. You know, people like to take risks. Some people like to take risks more than others. You know, are there a lot of people who are involved in the criminal justice system who like to take risks? Absolutely. That's one of the criteria we use in in identifying somebody as psychopathic, is that they have a kind of a high threshold for risk. They like to take risks. They get a kick out of it. But they want to get away with it. I don't believe there are people out there who want to get caught in that true sense of the word. So when we see people maybe taking more and more risks, and I'll use this example of, I don't know if you've seen the jinx, and even if you have, you know enough to know that what's presented to you by the uh, filmmakers might not be the whole story. This guy, Mr. Durst, just in terms of doing the interviews, raised a lot of flags. Why would he do this? And I've heard maybe he wants to get caught. And as you go further along, it seems like his risk-taking grew exponentially. Now, is that part of risk-taking behavior that you have to keep amping up the risk in order to make it more thrilling to you? Well, that's certainly true. I mean, I think that people become a little bit, you know, I, I, I don't know, unexcited by risks that they've taken over and over again. And that's why you see people take bigger and bigger risks. You know, just like a drug addict might need a bigger and bigger dose to, to get the same buzz, the thrill seeker needs a bigger and bigger risk. So they shoplift in, you know, really flagrant ways. They do things that are really pushing the line and, and, and making it more likely that they will be caught. But that's because they don't get the same rush from the risk-taking as it becomes more and more typical for them. So is this guy, I mean, the facts of this, that parallels that because, you know, Durst is accused of murder. He was on trial for murder. And he would do things along the way like shoplift from a Wegmans, even though he had hundreds of dollars in his pocket and later actually urinated on candy at a CVS, doing these things that constantly put him in contact with the law. Again, some people said, ah, this is trying to get caught. You're saying maybe the better explanation is, I mean, it could be a lot of things, but if you want to look at it in that context, you're saying it's that he needed that risk in his life. When I give that explanation, I'm not saying for him per se, but just in general for criminals, because, you know, the truth is there are lots of different pathways to that same end. I have heard people, and I have not seen the jinx, so I don't really know much about, you know, other than what I read in the newspaper, which is, frankly, not all that much, (laughs) because I haven't been all that interested in the case. But 
you know, I have heard people say that he has some significant mental health problems. Mm -hmm. People who are seriously mentally ill do stupid, impulsive things because they don't think that clearly. So does he urinate on, on a candy aisle because he's mentally ill or because he, you know, uh, maybe he just has to go to the bathroom really badly? I, I don't know in any individual instance, but I do know that there are a cadre of people that we see as more sort of chronic criminals who do engage in high-risk behaviors because of the thrill. Dr. Barry Rosenfeld, forensic psychologist, is the chair of the psychology department at Fordham University. Thank you. Thank you. So I was reading the Wall Street Journal the other day, and they were talking about different apps or ways to cull your reading list. God, do I need those apps. And they quote a guy named Philip Krim, who says he clips and saves reading material from the web onto his smartphone with an app called Pocket. They had a whole list of apps that were recommended, Pocket and Reader with two E's and Evernote. And I'm thinking about this guy, Philip Krim, and I'm thinking, here's a guy who likes to take in a lot of information, so he's, he's very smart, yet he also likes a relaxed and simplified life. Hey, Philip Krim is the founder and chief executive officer of Casper, a New York mattress company. So I'm here to endorse Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. And they're also great mattresses. They're like half latex foam and half memory foam. They're Matex, Lemery, they're Lemery foam. Here's the best thing about Casper, completely risk-free. They'll deliver their Lemery foam to you and they'll say, keep it for 100 days or keep it for 99. But definitely before the 100. They're so sure you'll like the mattress, and they're so sure you'll like the price, and they're so sure you'll like the lemery that you'll stick with the Casper mattress. So to get $50 off any mattress, go to www.casper.com slash gist and use the promo code gist for an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Joining me now is Adam Davidson, who's so many things. I always identify you as the uh, founder of NPR's Planet Money. It's not untrue, but there are better, more interesting, more accurate, more recent ways to describe you, Adam. On Money columnist for the New York Times Magazine. That's good. Technical consultant for Adam McKay's film, The Big Short. How's that going? It's really fun. It's actually amazingly fun. What's the biggest thing they got wrong that you said, no, 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 guys, money's green or that sort of thing? I mean, honestly, I've gone through line by line in the script and made an awful lot of changes. But it, I got to say, McKay really wants to get it right. And you can hear my interview with him on the working podcast, Slate's working podcast. Is that your debut? That is my debut. Oh, yeah. So that's the best way to identify Adam. He is the new host for this season's working, a Slate podcast, a panoply podcast. Cool. Hey, Adam, today I wanted to talk about the Greek financial crisis as it relates to the Germans. I know it's Greece versus the EU. The EU has come to be the Germans. The Germans are dictating terms. There's a great article in the New York Times Friday, which in a headline synthesized a lot of what I've been thinking. Language of Greek crisis shifts from financial jargon to humiliation. And I want to talk about it in its context. You know, so often when we talk about financial issues, you know, especially publicly, when politicians talk about it, when they frame it to the public, why should we take these policies? It's about issues of right and wrong. Some will say, that's inaccurate. You want to make it about right and wrong. It's m mostly about sense and sensibility. So, you know, how much of why the Greeks 
are experiencing a crisis and why the Germans are imposing these rules on them, how much of that is just about, you know, the arcana of bonds and how much of it really is about character and choices and ethics? I'd say that there are some people who showed really bad character, made really bad choices. But I would say that there are as many, if not more, Germans who showed bad character and made really bad choices back in the early part of the 2000s as there were Greeks. So this is... So all of Germany is thinking the Greeks lived high on the hog and they weren't like us, the Germans. They didn't live within their means. And now, of course, they should be paying the bills. That's too simple? That's way too simple. Mm -hmm. There's no question the Greek government made some really bad choices. They borrowed huge amounts of money. A lot of it was very poorly used. A lot of it was used to inflate employment without actually giving people jobs that were productive and would have long-term benefit to the country. Greece didn't make all sorts of structural choices that probably in the long term they really need to make. But equally so, or maybe even more so, it was German banks as part of a, a coherent German government strategy that lent them that money. Basically, Germany's strategy for economic strength is to be a surplus nation, to sell so much to the rest of the world that it amasses huge amounts of cash, which it then lends to other people to buy the stuff that they sell. And I don't want to get too far down this, but when you have a currency union, when you have a whole bunch of countries under one currency, but that currency is really dominated by one country, in other words, Germany, they can manipulate how that currency works in a way that's enormously to their benefit and basically to the detriment of others. So I would say that the European Central Bank and Germany's treatment of Greece is a far more heinous act than Greece's irresponsibility. You know, it, it's probably analogous to the subprime mortgage crisis. I mean, there certainly are people who want to blame the subprime mortgage crisis on those irresponsible borrowers. But I think Yes, I did meet many irresponsible borrowers. I really did. Yeah. I actually didn't meet a lot of people who were, I would call, fully innocent victims. Yeah. That being said, I put way more of the blame on the investment banks and the lax regulation, et cetera. Human nature is such that there will always be someone willing to take easy money, right? And it's kind of up to you not to give it. And you're the fool if you do. I get that. Yeah. And, and I think the Germans had the power in this relationship. The Germans had the fiscal tools. The Germans really called the shots. And, and so what the Germans really set the Greeks up in a horrible way. If you went to, I don't know, a broke neighbor and just started lending them lots and lots of money so that they would come over and buy your homemade lemonade or whatever, uh, wherever the sand analogy is going to go. Yeah. And they ended up getting really deeply into hawk to you. It's, I don't know if you can just blame the neighbor. Uh, now, there are a lot of economies in Europe. I mean, there are a lot of economies around the world in shambles. Let's just look at Europe. Iceland's economy was in shambles. The Spanish, the Portuguese, the Greeks. Now, the Greeks are in the worst shambles. And from reports I've read, I don't know that they were put there by Bild Zeitung or other German newspapers. It does seem that the Greeks acted with the most profligacy, right? They can't even collect their taxes. They didn't look, they don't look at economics the way the English or the Germans or even the Americans look at economics as a ledger sheet that has to be in balance. Is that wrong? 
No, no. Look, Greece is a mess. There's no question. And if Greece had not joined the euro and it still used the drachma, it would probably be a mess. Although it probably wouldn't be as bad a mess. It would have a lot more tools at its disposal. One thing it could do is, for example, lower the value of the drachma, which would encourage more exports, would encourage more tourism. There are tools it would have if it had its own central bank. Yes, Greece is a poor agrarian economy on a continent with a lot of modern industrialized economies or post-industrialized economies. I once made the analogy to, you know, New York City to Mississippi. And then I did some research and I found the distance is actually greater. Yeah, it seems like a Caribbean country to the United States. It's tourism it's, and agriculture, the biggest. And really unproductive yeah. tourism and really, really, <laughs> really, really unproductive nights. agriculture. Yeah, I yeah. mean, for example, it does export a lot of olive oil, but what it exports is the bulk stuff and then Italians put it in bottles, put labels on it and sell it because the Greek system is terrible. Yeah. The bottling machines are bad. The stickers that they put on the bottling machines are bad. Italians are making more money off of Greek olive oil than Greeks are. I can't say 100 percent, but yeah, Yeah, basically. So imagine, because this actually did happen, so you can imagine it, a bunch of New York bankers went to rural Florida and said, hey, Everyone who wants a house, you get four houses. Yeah. And then they got in a lot of trouble. It would be hard to tell that story. Yes, they were profligate. Yes, they should have been more responsible. But also the people who lent them the money have a lot to blame. And there might be an extra layer of recrimination if those New York bankers also a couple generations ago occupied rural Florida because the Nazis and Greece and there's a lot of bad blood. I will say that as far as I know, most... New York bankers do eventually occupy Southern Florida. Yeah, actually, that's yeah, that's the general uh, trend in terms of migration. It's very confusing because it feels like the best way for Germany to get their money back and for Greece to get out of this mess is to be quite a bit more forgiving. Again, not to say the Greek people deserve a much better government. They deserve a tax system that actually collects taxes. They deserve an economy that's productive. You know, like oil I want companies <laughs> that know how to ship and bottle and label their own oil. Yes, yes exactly. Yes. I want all those things for the people of Greece, but I don't want them like by next Thursday. You know what I mean? Like yep. it, it, this, these things take time. This is Adam Davidson's lesson for Germany. Let the Greeks eat their Spanakopita. They'll need the fuel to pay back the debt eventually. And to pay their fee for the subways that the government borrowed money for but didn't actually build. Yeah. Less an analogy, more of an actual thing that happened. Yeah. Adam Davidson is so many things, but catch him on the new working podcast. This is uh, the second season. David Plotz did it the first season. Adam is doing how many episodes do we have planned? Ten. Ten episodes with such luminaries as Adam McKay and a Greek subway driver who never got a job. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, not for life. A key retirement in the world of professional football. Chris Borland of the San Francisco 49ers called it quits. Borland will not make the Hall of Fame. You, even if you were a pretty big football fan, you probably haven't even heard of him. Well, maybe today you did, because Borland is 24 years old. He did not make millions of dollars in the NFL. He did achieve his dream of playing in the NFL for one season. He had a great season, but now he's saying no more because he's afraid of what concussions might do to him. 
There have been other young men who have hung it up for health reasons before when it comes to professional football. Some have made millions of dollars and decided not to push it for another year. But that other year is usually 30-something. There's a new trend. This week it's presenting itself. A 27-year-old named Jason Worlds retired. He did make millions playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Orland made the NFL minimum $420,000 and got a signing bonus, which he'll have to give back a portion of. Some of the NFL's old guard were very guarded. Mike Florio, who is the reporter behind PFT Pro Football Talk, he also appears on NBC's Sunday Night Football, struck back at those who would point to this as a seminal moment in NFL history. Now, the fact that reporters like Sports Illustrated's Peter King A noted, let's say, NFL non-declinist, right? Not a football hater, not someone who's saying football will come to a close. But that Peter King was pointing to this as a pretty big deal didn't phase Florio. He tweeted, The hyperbole from the anti-football crowd over Borland's retirement is astounding. Tweeted that to his million followers. All right, this shows that it's easy to argue against a cartoon version of your opponent's argument. And in this day and age, you don't even have to invent that cartoon version. You'll find it on Twitter. Some idiot is making the worst version of his side's case. So Florio latched on to that. Maybe someone said this means the NFL is doomed. And then he went on to make a supply and demand case as a reason why football isn't in decline. Tweet, Americans routinely assume far greater physical risks for far less money and fame than the risk-reward of playing in the NFL. All right, but the relative safeness and pay of football versus commercial fishing, let's say, that's not the point. Fishing fatalities per 100,000 workers, 121.2. Median wage, $30,200. NFL minimum salary, like I said, $420,000. And the way OSHA calculates it, no fatalities. But that our number one cultural obsession is safer than, say, the gears of a combine or the slippery deck of an ocean trawler, that's not the point. It's not a fair comparison. It's not fair to say, as Florio did in a later tweet, the anti-football agenda sees Chris Borland as a tipping point. There are still far more potential NFL players than there are NFL jobs. That also spectacularly misses the point. Look, for every championship belt in the sport of boxing, there are hundreds of contenders. Yet is boxing a healthy sport? Are other sports seen as safer and more attractive by fans and by participants or potential participants? Hell yeah. And we know that safety is an actual motivator, not just something that the hand-wringing ninnies fret about. Because the sport of MMA, which has surpassed boxing, boxing's most logical analog, MMA always points out that their sport is safer than boxing. Safety is a selling point of MMA. Mike Florio engages in sophistry when he poses a question like the following one to Ross Tucker, an NFL lineman. Here, this is from Florio's radio show. And I think part of this comes from a presumption that because football involves head contact and head contact is necessarily part of football you necessarily will get brain damage if you play football because any and all head contact means you will suffer brain damage what you're telling me is that's not the case well of course it's not the case and florio knows it's not the case 
Now, I want to be fair, and since my entire point here is about what are fair and unfair arguments, and also because I try to steer clear of talk of motivation, I'm not going to call Florio a shill, because I do not think that he is motivated by money. However, I do want to point out that the show you heard, that's an NBC show, the website he runs, that's a NBC-owned website, the TV show he's on, NFL on NBC, well, there you go. It's a broadcast partner of the NFL. Mike Florio's livelihood literally does depend on the position he's advocating, that football is not going away. And I agree with that position. It's not going away. But today, the state of football was revealed to be a bit more wounded than we had previously thought. These are wounds that the NFL can survive but should not disregard. It would be wise to monitor these wounds. Chris Borland might know something about that. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Andrea Salenzi, who has been known to dress as a woman. The Gist's intern is Claire Tennisgetter, who enjoys the occasional sandwich from Wegmans. Managing producer of The Gist, Joel Meyer, urinates on Skittles. Not for a marking his territory reason, just because sometimes Skittles need urinating on. Executive producer Andy Bowers is kept at arm's length, at best, by powerful New York real estate families. The Gist is on Yo!, Download Yo, subscribe to podcast, and whenever the gist is ready, Yo will let you know. The gist is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. All right, for old time's sake, P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. The gist, just a blinking, doe-eyed innocent in a world that's out to get us. Thanks for listening. This is Josh Levine, host of Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen on this week's episode. We'll get you ready for the NCAA tournament. We'll talk about snubs. We'll talk about Kentucky. We'll talk about I Hate Christian Leitner, the new documentary. You Osprey? Can... Osprey. Osprey, Osprey will, talk. Be, will be mentioned. Which of the 68 teams has the mascot, the Ospreys? You can Here's subscribe. Subscribe to hang up and listen. Subscribe to know. Only way to learn. <laughs> That's the only way you can find that out. iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.